Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. As Steph said earlier, uh, during this worship series, one hell of a week, we're working our way slowly through the last week of Jesus's life, as told in Mark's gospel. And so several weeks ago, we remembered the palm protest on Sunday, and then the next week, the tree testing and table turning on Monday and Tuesday, and then last week, supper sharing on Wednesday and Thursday, and now, tonight, We have arrived at Good Friday, a.k.a. Worst Friday Ever. I want to invite you to keep shading in that paper with your pencil, if you like, or if you want to engage the reading a little more tonight, you can use it to make tally marks on the page whenever you hear different characters introduced into the story. Think about it like this. If you were trying to stage this reading with all the people that are mentioned in Mark chapter 15, how many would it take? And I invite you to join with me in the reading as a kind of Greek chorus, again, to the narrative as it goes along. This is from Mark chapter 15. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. You say so. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. So Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. He made no further reply. Now, at the festival, Pilate used to release a prisoner for them, anyone for whom they asked. Now, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during an insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Then he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? for he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again, Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate asked them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole cohort. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and After twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. 
and they began saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews! They struck his head with a reed. They spat upon him and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. They led him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him. And they crucified him. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, <laughs> you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from that cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from that cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come, and since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself waiting expectantly for the reign of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate wondered if he were already dead and 
summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had been dead for some time. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought a linen cloth and taking down the body, wrapped it in the linen cloth and laid it in a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. He then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where the body was laid. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I am tempted to fly away in my imagination, back to the night between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, back to the laboring mother and her attentive spouse. I want to hear the baby's first loud cry, full of lusty, life-loving potential. I want to see Joseph's tender cradling of him, how the man's coarse carpenter's hands gently clean that tiny body, wiping meconium from his nose so breath has free passage, warming him in bands of cloth, swaddling him in security, so he can be laid to rest on mama's breast. You might remember that Mark's gospel told us nothing of that night, the birth in the barn. But here in chapter 15, all the details are present, such that we might guess he knew them all along. The baby's first breath and first loud cry become the man's last loud cry, signaling that breath will not enter his lungs again. The Joseph fiancé of Mary that we never met in Mark's account is recapitulated here in Joseph of Arimathea, waiting for the reign of God as anxiously as any new parent awaits the birth of a child. The swaddling scraps for a newborn's first diapering here become a linen shroud for wrapping the body of the dead. The corpse is laid to rest in a crevice of Mother Earth, asleep at her breast, held close to the ground from whence he came. But jumping there to the tenderest part of the story would be a cheat. It's like that Vampire Weekend song, I've been cheating through this life and all its suffering. When all he asked anyone to do was stay with him, stay awake with him, stand witness to his suffering, it is literally the least we can do. So, we rewind, not all the way to Christmas, but just a Thursday, just yesterday when in the span of one awful day and night, the people who were closest to him, the only ones he had after he had shucked so many, including his family of origin, they left him. Judas sold him out. Peter pretended not to know him. The sleepy disciples in the garden found enough energy to flee when the going got rough. Even an anonymous stranger streaked away without his bedsheets when trouble got too close, remember? That all happened in Mark 14, just yesterday. 
And in a way, Mark 15 is a continuing chronicle of how many ways Jesus can be made to feel abandoned and alone. There are, of course, the VRPs, very religious persons. The religious hierarchy that's been angry with him, let's face it, since the get-go. Their irritation, though, has escalated over the course of the entire gospel to the point of wanting Jesus eliminated from their list of problems to be solved violently if necessary. So now they bring him to the secular so-called justice system, hoping that Rome will do the dirty work for them as their capital punishment apparatus doesn't function as efficiently as it used to. The Roman governor, Pilate, understands that anger is usually a secondary emotion layered over fear or sadness, or in this case, jealousy as a particular subset of fear. Mark 15, 10, for Pilate realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. His outsider status gives him some clarity about the posturing in their piety. So he diagnoses the VRPs as jealous that the crowds have demonstrated real affection for Jesus and the way he brings God near. A feeling that no crowd has shown for any VRP in a very long time. Those crowds, though, you know, you have to watch out for them in the Gospels, as in life. Because crowds are fickle. They're easily blown about by winds other than the windy Holy Spirit. The way Mark tells it, those crowds quickly coagulate around Jesus, the miracle worker. I mean, by chapter 2 of this Gospel, there's already such a crowd around him that the healing of the paralyzed man requires his friends to dig down through the roof and lower him with ropes, remember? And Jesus is always, in Mark, trying to escape the crowds on foot or by boat, crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee back and forth to get away. Sometimes, sometimes he is so pressed by crowds of humanity that healing happens before he even knows who's asking for it. The rain of God leaking out through the hems of his clothing, apparently. So saturated is he with God getting everything God wants. And in the latter chapters of Mark, when Jesus and his friends occupy Jerusalem noisily, conspicuously, the VRPs have in mind to get rid of him, but they can't make a move because of the crowds around him. Mark 11, Mark 12 mention the crowd no less than five times. Jesus, untouchable, the crowds who need his help and hang on his every word are his protection against the powers that be. And those same crowds, when they sense that the tide is turning, that their good shepherd just might be a lamb for the slaughter, well, they embody humans' worst impulse to cut and run. They are Judas and Peter and all the rest of Jesus' friends, multiplied scores hundreds of times. The VRPs stir up a very stir-upable crowd in chapter 15, verse 11, so that they press Pilate to deal his annual get-out-of-jail-free-to-keep-the-natives-happy card to Barabbas the insurrectionist rather than to Jesus the... the what? 
it's not clear to Pilate what Jesus even is, what charge can be made to stick in a Roman court of law, but the crowd is insistent. So Pilate does what corrupt justice systems always do. He capitulates to the will of the majority. Mark 15, 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. So now, at this point, the only people left with Jesus are the ones who absolutely have to be there. There are the Roman soldiers of Pilate's guard who decide to make a sport of the day's duty, turning the brutality into a game, mocking him while they abuse him so that his spirit will suffer maximally along with his body. There's a scene in Colson Whitehead's novel, Underground Railroad, where the black protagonist, an enslaved person on the run from white slave hunters, is hiding in a white abolitionist attic. The attic has a tiny window for ventilation in the front, and the house faces the town square. In the morning, our protagonist peers out to watch the white townspeople going to church in their Sunday best and observes them returning to the town square with baskets and blankets ready to share a meal on a sunny afternoon. But it's not just a late lunch they're sharing. There will be entertainment. A black man, beaten nearly to death for some crime we do not know, most probably to protect the reputation of some white woman who has lodged a complaint against his blackness, has been kept alive through the night so that he can provide a show for the gathered crowd. His hanging will be for their amusement. They will take photographs of his dying and his death. Photographs will be sold as postcards. White people will mail them to their relatives, these macabre souvenirs of their sunny sporting day in the park. The soldiers mocked him, pretending to pay him royal homage. The playful pageantry of his palm parade now turned to a sinister and sadistic scorn. The difference Jesus had been punching up. These soldiers are punching down. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. With his usual straightforward brevity, Mark plunges his readers to what we might assume is rock bottom. But wait, there's more. Despite the extreme nature of the violence to Jesus' body, he has not reached the end of the violence to his whole person. The public nature of crucifixion means the humiliation does not end even when the breathing stops. While the life drains from his body, random people, until now not even necessarily aware of Jesus' existence, poke fun at his distress. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from that cross. And then the VRPs, so afraid for so long, are emboldened now to take their shots 
In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him and saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from that cross now so that we may see and believe. And Mark tells us in verse 32 of this chapter, as if to say, oh, now we are at rock bottom. Now there is no further depth to which this story can sink. Mark says, those who were crucified with him also taunted him. Other gospelers may tell us that one criminal or the other had a change of heart that day, but for Mark, the abandonment is total. Jesus is completely alone, isolated, cut off from all who might have had sympathy for him. Disciples and friends, family of origin, the religious establishment of his youth and upbringing, the government and justice system, the crowds who had loved him, finally even strangers, finally even those who are as bad off as he is. And when Mark has finished cataloging completely the falling away of the many, the crashing waves of repeated rejection, only then will he tell us Jesus' singular utterance of the whole ordeal. He hasn't said a mumbling word since that last, you say so, in Pilate's court. But now he finds breath enough to cry out to the heavens in Aramaic, his native tongue, the language of his heart. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means from the 22nd Psalm, right out of Israel's hymnal and prayer book. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. I cry by night and find no rest. To you our ancestors cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I, I am a worm, not human, scorned by others, despised by the people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They make mouths at me, men. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from the day of my birth. And since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me. Trouble is near. There is no one to help Save me, O oh God, from the mouth of the lion. It is a thing that Jesus learned, had to learn, for the sake of his full humanity. That when every human being you can think of has left you, abandoned you, has judged and rejected you, has betrayed and denied you, has left you to suffer alone, maybe, maybe even enjoying your misery because it reminds them how good they've got it, how it sucks to be you. When that happens, and when you are finally lying, battered and broken, at rock fucking bottom, all by your ever-loving self, that, 
that is when it feels like even God has left you. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Another way to say it is, if God's absence becomes our reality when the absence of human companionship has been duly recorded, well, then it stands to reason that God's presence is made known to us, becomes and remains real for us in the presence of each other. You see how important we are to each other? You see how essential it is that we show up for each other, even and especially when one of us is suffering. Beloveds, please, don't ever, ever imagine that your presence with Galileo Church, or honestly, any place that you feel compelled to show up with your whole beautiful self, is simply about checking a box. Don't, don't ever imagine that coming to church, whether it's this worship service online or IRL, or going to G-Craft or happy hour or a weekly G-Group, or in that Minecraft server, don't ever imagine that that's about fulfilling a religious obligation or keeping a volatile deity placated or even scratching some private spiritual itch in your own soul. No, our presence here together is a pledge that we have made in the wake of the worst Friday ever. A pledge that in the community of belonging that forms in Jesus' name, nobody suffers alone anymore. We come alongside each other on our best days and our worst days, and we embody God's presence for each other so that nobody here is ever pushed to the point of praying that prayer, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. I want to point out also that when Mark has finished the litany of abandonment, when he has followed it through all the way to God's own absence, and Jesus' last breath. He still has a few people in his mind's eye that he wants us to see too. There is that centurion for one, an officer in Rome's army watching over the day's proceedings. He stood facing him, Mark says. And when Jesus breathed his last after that loud cry, the centurion made his confession. Surely, this man was God's son. And then there were the women, Mark says, looking on from a distance. Mary Magdalene, another Mary, Salome, too many more to name, faithful friends, financial supporters, standing back out of the way, watching quietly to see what happens next. What happens next is Joseph, not Jesus' adoptive father, but expectant nonetheless. The body of Jesus will receive the best care that Joseph can give it on short pre-Sabbath notice. You see, here are three little stories, centurion, women, Joseph, three little stories of People who, in their own way, in their own time, become present 
before Jesus. Yes, I know, after he's dead, his eyes cannot see them, his heart cannot rejoice in their companionship, but they are here. And Mark seems to be telling us, take a look, learn the lesson, better late than never. Indeed, maybe it is never too late to offer love and loyalty, to offer ourselves for the companionship of another in suffering. You might even say that beyond offering our companionship to each other for this hard life, our presence here is about coming alongside Jesus in his suffering. We are the centurion making our confession after he's already breathed his last. We are the women watching from a distance, not sure how safe it is to come any closer. We are Joseph tenderly caring for his body. Don't miss the metaphor. The church is the body of Christ. As we wait expectantly for God's reign to break in. Better late than never, Mark says. So here we are. We proclaim his death until he comes. One more thing. What about this? What if you never thought very much about the objectification of women's bodies and the fetishization of Asian women's bodies and Christians' disgust and distress about our own bodies and how these could combine to drive one white Christian man to murder eight people, six of them Asian American women because misogyny and racism and purity culture, as it turns out, combine into a volatile, murderous poison it's not too late to learn it, Mark says. The women are dead, yes. The damage has been done, yes. But it is not too late for us. We can let their deaths matter now as we stand facing it. We can learn another lesson of this beautiful world's brokenness. If we won't leave them alone at rock bottom, our companionship there will mean that God has not left them alone. And God's own presence with those who suffer, even unto death, will teach us how that suffering can be redeemed so that this violence is not repeated. It is the only imperative of the gospel tonight. Stay steady, stay present, face it all, even from a distance, even now when it's all over. Don't look away, just stay. And don't let it happen again. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, We'll continually send you thanks. Peace.